Good morning. Chicago, you do weather. It is fantastic to be with you. And I'm uh, really, really glad uh, to be here. I did come from LA, but I am born and raised in the Midwest. And it feels good to be, uh, you know, wondering if there's going to be a snow day or whatever it looks like. I mean, just it's fantastic. So it's really, really great uh, to be with you. Um, I love this church. I love your church. Pastor Dan has been an influential voice and leader um, for us at Foley Theological Seminary. He has um, just brought his gifts and talents to us and we're forever grateful. Uh, and Pastor Steve is uh, one of my students in my Doctor of Ministry cohort. That's right, I'm grading him right now. No, I'm not. Um, but I love uh, having Steve a part of that. He is a voice for the next generation and he brings um, so much quality to the work that we do. So, um, I, I, yeah, yeah, so grateful for Steve. Um, so, yeah, and he has, he has some great ideas that I get to always hear about, so I'll have to share that with you sometime. But, uh, yeah, so it's really, really great um, to be with you, and I'm glad to uh, take this time to reflect uh, in our time of worship this morning about this idea of, you know, how do we raise another generation? How do we think about the complex world that we're, that we're in, and what does it mean uh, for all of us? Now, uh, Kathy uh, gave a really nice uh, introduction, way too long, but um, I, I, she is right. Um, there are some things that I, I do. Um, I spend a lot of time thinking about uh, young people, about spirituality, about families, about intergenerational ministry. I talk with a lot of churches, a lot of leaders, a lot of young people, and it's just really a privilege to have these sort of conversations. But if I could distill the conversations, um, there are two that are sort of compelling to me, okay? So I have conversations with older types, and I have conversations with younger type. Now you're like, am I an older type or a uh, younger type? I'm going to let you decide that because I am not going to get in the way of that, okay? So I'm going to let you decide. But what I find interesting is with older types, uh, especially leaders in churches and parents and everything else, uh, when I ask them about like, so what do you think of like young people? This is what they tell me. We love young people. We believe in young people. We want them to succeed. And we're trying to figure out ways to do that more and more. And I'm like, well, that's, that's great. That's really, really good. Now, when I talk with young people and I say, well, what do you think of older types? And what do you think of like the church? This is what they tell me. The church is pretty cool. It's all right. I, I, I believe in what they're doing. Uh, if I've been part of a church, says a younger person, um, I, I've really valued uh, the people that have invested in me, the opportunity that was given to me, and I still think about them uh, often, okay? So it's interesting that you've got older types that are like, you know, we really love and are committed to younger types, and the younger types that are saying, you know, the older types aren't so bad. We actually have, love them and have respect for them. Now, you don't need to be a professor or a researcher, though, to read social media or the news and recognize the fact that we're seeing a decline um, in um, church attendance, that the generations in many ways are not getting together, and there's often sometimes even a tension between the older types and the younger types, oftentimes in our churches. Now, as a professor and a researcher, I'm kind of like, well, this is interesting. We've got the younger types and the older types that like the older types and the younger types, but we can't seem to get it, get it together. Why? What, where's the lost in translation part? Now, I don't have all the answers, but let me just throw you out some of my musings of what I think about that. 
I think that oftentimes when we see disparity or misunderstanding between the older types and the younger types, oftentimes we think the solution is some sort of programmatic space. We just need a new type of program. If we just change the music, if we just built the building, if we just did certain things, that will solve the problems. Now, there's nothing wrong with program. There's nothing wrong with building. There's nothing wrong with creating space. But the problem is, is that if we're not careful, the younger types and the older types can do things for each other at a distance and never get to the point that's really, really the most important thing of what I think older types and younger types need. They don't necessarily only want program space, they want relational room, space where we can actually see each other, opportunity for us to truly understand where each other is coming from, possibility for us to be authentic with one another because that's where life actually happens. And the problem is, is that a lot of times I think that the older types and the younger types have not been able to see each other really well. And this is where we get all the generational stuff. We've got younger types critiquing older types in ways that doesn't feel very good. And we've got older, and we've got younger types uh, and older types um, doing the same thing back and forth. And so you see the problem here, okay? So what do we do about that? How do we get it together? The beautiful thing is, is that if we look at the scriptures, we find that in many ways, Paul actually gives some light uh, to this. And in um, his letter to his younger protege, Timothy, he says something in 2 Timothy 2 that I think is really, really powerful. And I'm going to read it for you. And I think it's on the screen. And oh, that, I'm going to have to get a little bit closer because those, those, oh, no, no, I, mean, I can read it. It's fine. Okay. So I'm not memorizing it. Here it is. It's going to go. Um, you can read along in your Bible, 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 8, or you can listen to my winsome voice. Sit back. It's going to be awesome. You ready? Okay. Oh, and one more thing. Um, those of you that are online, I see you. I mean, not literally, but I do see you. Kathy asked you to type in your name in the chat. That's great. I'm kind of interested in like, what beverage are you drinking right now? Like, is it a pour over? Is it like cappuccino? Is it a smoothie? Uh, chat it in. I'd love to know. Okay, back to the passage. Okay, 2 Timothy 2. You then, my son, Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join me in suffering like a good soldier in Christ Jesus. No one serving a soldier is entangled in, uh, in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who uh, competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. Okay, a lot going on there. I'm sure you remembered everything that I said. Let me try to unpack it really quick and just boil it down for you. First of all, Paul says there's something about the gospel that's expressed. It's expressed not just individually, but collectively. Notice that Paul says, join me in figuring this out. Paul is not just telling Timothy to do something. He's actually saying, we're kind of in this together. Older type, younger type, we need to figure this out together. And the way that we're going to do it is we're going to embody these three metaphors of being a good uh, soldier, a good athlete and a good farmer. You with me? Good. Okay. So now here's what I want you to do. If you don't remember anything else, I want you to remember three phrases that I hope that you will use sometime this week. The first phrase is this, I am for you. Say it back to me. 
I am for you. Say, I am with you. I am with you. I believe in you. Great. Okay, you're all set. You can like relax now. That's the sermon. You're done. So, um, so I think that each of these expressions are ones that allow us to create this relational room to embody the gospel so that it's no longer words, but actually brings us together. And these phrases invite us to take a risk with each other. A relational risk where we lean in a little closer to our neighbor, to those that we love, to those that are part of our family, so that we can nurture the sense of this good news of this gospel that only happens when we're in community, and it requires something of us, and I think it's evoked in these metaphors that Paul has given. So let's talk about each of these metaphors and tie it in uh, with these phrases. So Paul talks about this idea of a soldier, and again, we're going to think about the soldier and about this phrase, I am for you, okay? So So think about this idea of a soldier for a second. I think that what Paul is saying here is he says, look, a soldier like listens to his commanding officer and doesn't get entangled in civilian affairs. Great. What does that mean? Well, let's just remember that Roman soldiers uh, oftentimes are sort of misunderstood. And I don't mean like psychologically, but just their, their perception of it. We often think of soldiers as going out fighting epic battles. You know, it's like something from like Hollywood, you know, slow motion, gory, but it's like all this honor and everything else. You know what I'm talking about, right? The reality is, is this, is that most soldiers didn't spend a lot of time in battle. As the Roman Empire grew and annexed other smaller towns, Soldiers were assigned sleep to sleepy little towns to stand at the street corner and simply do two things. Keep the peace, serve the people. Okay? Keep the peace, serve the people. Okay? Now imagine me as a Roman soldier sitting at the corner of, uh, you know, the main street of a sleepy little town. What am I wearing? I am wearing my uniform that represents the power of Rome. I have authority, and with this power, I can do one of two things. I can use the power that has been given to me to serve the people and keep the peace, or I can use my, that power to serve myself. See the difference? Paul is saying that the gospel, when we are for another person, we use that power to serve others, not to serve ourselves. And so this issue of power becomes really, really crucial. Now, you and I are not Roman soldiers, but I guarantee this, you all have power. You've been gifted in some sort of way where you have financial power or relational power or life power or you have influence power. You have power in some sort of way. And the question is not whether or not you have power. The question is how you're going to use it. Will you use it for the glory, for the benefit of others, or will you use it uh, for yourself? Now, power is tricky. I find a lot of times that we have power, we don't even realize it, but we're using it to serve ourselves. And we can do this actively. We do it actively when we begin to think that we have the only answer or the only perspective and anything that's differing than us is something that is wrong and even offensive and almost we treat somebody as an enemy. And so what often happens is, is that we use our power in such a way to shut down the voices of others so that they cannot be seen and they cannot be heard so that our narrative comes, comes through because we think that we're right. This is a power of propaganda. It is not the gospel. It is something that reduces and dehumanizes others because we want our agenda to come through. Unfortunately, I think a lot in Western Christianity has been a lot more propaganda propaganda than gospel lately, and I think that's a problem. 
There's also a passive form of the way that we use power. And this passive form, um, I would call privilege. And uh, privilege is just something that we have a lot of times. But if we're not careful, we recognize the fact that when we have the power that we have and the privilege that we have, we can see the injustices in the world, but ultimately it doesn't effective, affect us. So we turn a blind eye because it really doesn't change the way we live every day. You see what happens. There can be injustices in the world that don't really affect us, so we don't do anything about it, and we just go on living our lives. If we're not careful, power can either uh, erase people or it can actually ignore people, and that, what Paul is saying, is not the gospel. The gospel is thinking and seeing about how we use our power for the benefits of others. And this was Dr. Martin Luther King's dream. That if there's injustice in the world, it's injustice that hurts us all. If all are not free, none of us are free. The gospel calls us to recognizing the fact that where we see injustice in the world, whatever power we have that we can use, we use it for the benefit of the other. Now, what I also think is interesting is this, is that as we think about this idea of power, we recognize the fact that we also have power in our relationships as older types and younger types. And it's using this power to say to one another, I am for you. I care about you. I care about your story. I care about your person. I want to see you for who you are. I find, I'll just confess to you, as a parent and as a dad, sometimes the conversations I have with my kids are task conversations. Did you get this done? Did you fill that out? Did you complete this? And I sometimes miss the chance to just be for my kids where I say to them, tell me what you're excited about. Tell me something you appreciate about your friends. Out of all the things you did today, what was your favorite? You see what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to understand and show them that I'm for them just for who they are rather than only thinking about the tasks. And I also know that there are a lot of older types, parents and grandparents where, you know, younger types, once in a while a phone call wouldn't be so bad. <laughs> To, to, to know that you can use your power and the, the time that you have to reach out to an older type that loves you and cares about you, to do that as well, is ways that we can communicate this idea, I am for you, I see you, you matter, and I want you to know that. So when we are for each other, not only is this beautiful news, but it also echoes the very words of Jesus who on the night that he was betrayed took the bread and took the cup and shared it with his disciples, some who would fail him, desert him, and betray him and say to them, I am giving this for you. So we echo the very words of Jesus when we extend ourselves to each other. We use our power to say, I'm for you, and I'm going to give myself to you. That's good news. And that's not just good, for a few, good news for a few people. That's good news for everyone. So we've got soldiers. I'm for you. We have got athletes. I'm 
with you. Paul says uh, athletes uh, compete according to the rules, um, which makes a lot of sense. I, I find what's interesting about like athletes is this, is that sometimes we only think about the big game. Like there's some big game going up gone today for football or whatever, which is, which is really super. But where the, the real work happens is before anybody gets up in the morning. The, where the blood, sweats, and tears happen is when uh, it's the, the, the non-fantastic spaces where people have to work really hard at their craft to become and to perform the way that they do. Also, a lot of times, I think in most sports, even running, there's the sense of the fact that we're in this together, that as a team, we only are, not only are bound to the, uh, the discipline of the event, but we're bound to each other, and that's what we do. And I think this is true of the Christian life as well, that we, as we are connected to Christ, we are connected to one another. And so we are bound by that in a profound way that allows us to say that we're with each other. And that is more than just sort of like, uh, uh, I don't know, good sentiment. We also know that from some research that faith and doubt are actually contagious. That if I raise questions of faith or raise questions of doubt and I share them with you, there is a chance that it will evoke in you your own questions and your own concerns. As we work with young people, we find a lot of times that as they bring up these questions of faith and doubt, it raises a sense of anxiety and a, a, a bit of panic. But what's interesting is as they share it with parents or grandparents, it raises in parents and grandparents a sense of anxiety and panic, right? You see what happens there? We are bound by each other in such a way that it brings us close together. And if we're not careful, if you're anxious, and I feel that, I sometimes will sh try to shut down your anxiety so that I don't have to feel anxious. But that's not the point. The point is that we actually have to st step closer to each other. And this is the challenge that I think that we have. When we see people going through things in life that affect all of us. We have a choice. We can either step toward the person or we can step away. Now, we talked about this metaphor of the athletes, so let me use an athletic uh, illustration uh, for this. Um, as Kathy uh, mentioned, I am a marathon runner. Don't hold that against me or her or other marathoners uh, in, the, in the room. And marathoning has a lot of techniques that you have to think about. But in the end of the day, all you're doing is you're teaching your body to run a long time. That's, that's it, okay? So there's a loop uh, in Pasadena that I run. It's about a 5K loop. It's about uh, three miles or so, uh, which is really, really great. But when you teach your body to run long for a marathon, you're running 15 to 22 miles or so um, at a particular pop. So that's a lot of times around this loop that I'm talking about for those of you that do math. You see what I'm saying? Now, what's interesting is this, is there's a culture with running as well. If I'm running around this loop counterclockwise, and there's other people that are running around it clockwise, a lot of times you will pass each other. And runners, when they pass each other, do something called the runner's nod. I'm going to teach it to you. You ready? That's it. Okay? You know what I'm talking about, right? And it's basically this acknowledgement like, hey, look, I'm a runner, you're a runner, it's cool, right? Now, what happens is, is if you pass this runner a few times, the nod turns into like a smile. Like, oh man, you're in this too, huh? Yeah, I'm in this too, right? But you don't say that because you're passing each other and you're trying to focus, right? But if this is going on for hours, you are like, brothers and sisters. You're like, we're in the struggle. Like, we are running long time together, okay? So there is this particular time where I'm running around this loop, and there's another gentleman running around the loop in the opposite direction. I'll call him Running Man. Actually, he had a shirt that said Running Man. So that, that was actually his name, okay? And as we're running around, we've seen each other. We've done the nod, the smile, the, you know, like, basically, like, we're friends. But I'm coming around this corner toward the end of my training run, and he's coming around the other way, and he sees me. 
and he can tell I was starting to slow down and I was dragging a little bit. And he stops in the middle of the road and he does this. You go, you go, you go. Well, what do you think I did? I went, like the running man told me to do it. I am definitely going to do it, okay? Um, I still see running man all the time. He's really, we, are, we are fast friends, okay? So, okay, now just take that story and set it over here for a second. So now I, I'm actually running the, the LA Marathon, okay? Now, those of you, if you run or not, you probably have heard this concept of the wall. Okay? There's a wall that happens in a marathon. It's usually between mile 18 to 22. It kind of depends. And it's in the space where your body is doing one of two things. It's either um, uh, working in such a way that you're running your race, you feel pretty good, and you know you've got about a 10K to go, and you are setting in your pace, and you're going to achieve your goals, and you're really excited about that. The other option is that your body is starting to shut down. You just sometimes don't know. There's so many factors that go into it. Your body is shutting down and you're wondering if you're going to make it to the end. The wall is one of the most vulnerable spaces in a marathon race, okay? Because you're just wondering, like, what's, what's going to happen? So I'm at mile 20 in this vulnerable space, thinking, engaging where my body is at. And I look over to my right, and there is a group of people in lawn chairs, sitting down with donuts <laughs> and venti coffees. And as I'm running by, they raise their glasses and they say to me, you're almost there. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I'm an ordained minister of the gospel, and I train people at Fuller Theological Seminary to be pastors but I will confess to you because now we are fast friends that at that moment, I wanted to run by and knock those coffees out of their hands. Why? Because comforting words from comfortable spaces are never comforting. Comforting words from comfortable spaces are never comforting. Do you know who I thought of in that moment, right? Running man, running man who knew what it was like to run hard and long and sweat and struggle. And I heard his words, you go, you go, you go. You know what I think people are looking for? Not people that are from a distance shouting wonderful things to us. You're almost there, praying for you. I'm sure it'll work out. Favorite Bible verse. Do you ever notice that as good intentioned as those are, if something hurts on the inside? I know we've all been on the recipient end of that, right? What we want is not someone shouting from the distance. We want someone to whisper up close, I'm with you. You go. You go. You go. Do you know somebody that's struggling in your life? Struggle with them. You someone that's mourning right now? Weep with them. You know someone who's doubting? Doubt with them. You know someone that's having a rough go? Hang in there 
with them because they need you in that space to know that they are not alone and that you are not going to give up on them. And when you do that, you echo the words of Jesus from Matthew 28, where Jesus, before he ascends on high, he says to his disciples, a mixed bag of disciples, some that just didn't, were doubting the whole thing, he says, I will be with you to the very end of the age. Now think about what that means. Jesus, who ascends on high and sits at the right hand of the Father, is sitting on, on a heavenly throne, and I guarantee he does not have a donut and a venti Starbucks in his hand, yelling down to us, you're almost there. But by his Spirit, he says, I am with you to the very end of the age. I am with you. You go, you go, you go. That is good news. And that's not just good news for a few of us. That's good news for everyone, right? Yeah. Soldiers, I'm for you. Athletes, I'm with you. And uh, farmers, I believe in you. Now, I am not a farmer. My family doesn't come from a, a, a farming background, so I can't really appreciate um, the, the, the work that goes into that. But as a Midwesterner, we can appreciate the heritage of the farming communities and those that provide so much resource for so many uh, people. And the technology has changed since biblical times, but one thing has not changed. We take the seed, we put it in the soil, and we believe that it will grow, right? It's just great theology too, right? Somebody plants, somebody waters, and God makes it grow. Think about the formula there. The formula is make the investment, believe that it will grow. The problem is in our society, we've reversed the formula. We basically say, let's see what fruit you produced and maybe we will pay attention to you. There's a conditionality in whether or not we will believe in someone. There is a list of what you need to accomplish before you can actually make it in this world. There are no longer first-time jobs. Now you have to get an, an unpaid internship before you can make it in this world because we want to see if you can produce before we will invest in you. And so we have a problem. And the problem is, is that we are running around trying to impress everybody because we somehow want to make it in this world. I do work with college students and they tell me all the time that when they think about their spirituality, this comes up there as well. And they say to me, Steve, I know that there are experiences and things that I'm learning in my life that are maybe different than the ways that I grew up in my church. And I'm going to figure it out. The intellectual dissonance is okay. But I am worried that if I go home and I raise these questions with the community that I left, that I'm a part of, that has raised me, that my father will be angry, my mother will be upset, my youth pastor will be disappointed in me, and my church will put me on a prayer list. And ladies and gentlemen, nobody wants to be on a prayer list. <laughs> do, do you notice what's happening though? Intellectual doubt for a young person often equates to relational fallout. And they deal with a guilt and shame associated with that. I also talk with older types, parents oftentimes, that as they reflect on their parenting and their lives and, their, and the things that they're working through, they are really, really hurting because they've said to me, oh, what I'd give for a do-over for the way that I parented. Oh, what I'd give for a closer relationship with my kids. I really blew it. And there's a guilt and shame associated with that as well. Where did this fear and guilt and shame 
come from? Why is that the world that we are living in? It is not of the gospel that is about grace and about love. It's hard enough out there. We've got a younger generation that is trying to make it in a world where the rules are constantly changing and where to be average is to basically to mean to be insignificant. And we live in a world where older types are trying to figure out what it means to be seen in a world that is addicted to new and improved. And we feel like as we get older that less and less of the world actually sees us who we are. We all just want to be seen. We all want to be loved. We all want to be known as someone that's a good investment, that we are worth it. And the gospel, it seems to be, needs to be something where we are able to see each other and say to each other, I believe in you. Like, what, what if, uh, what if um, we caught each other doing things right than doing things wrong all the time? What if we said, look, look at that, what you just did, do that again. What if we said to people, you're a good investment, you're worth it, you matter. I think that would make a difference. And when we begin to do this, we echo the very words of Jesus, who throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus constantly calling people to believe in me, believe in me, believe in me. Why? Because there's a subtext there, and the subtext is this, that if Jesus is saying, believe in me, believe in me, believe in me, the subtext <coughs> is this, believe in me because I believe in you. You're worth it. You're a good investment. I care about you. Your life matters. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I need to hear that. Oftentimes I need to hear that. And that, my friends, is good news. Not just for a few people, but that is good news for everyone, right? Right. So here's my challenge for us. These concept of, concepts of I am... Uh, I, I'm for you and I'm with you and I believe in you sound really, really great. But I wonder, as you're driving home today with whomever you came with, if perhaps one of, uh, one of you just needs to say to the other, hey, um, I just want to tell you that I'm for you. And I'm, I'm kind of curious about your story lately. Don't feel like we've connected, like we've we've used to, and I, I, I want that back. Or maybe you need to phone or text somebody and say, hey, um, I know you've, you're going through a rough go, and um, quite honestly, I don't think I've been there for you. I just want you to know I'm with you. Um, and can I buy you a cup of coffee, and uh, maybe you could just catch me up, because I really, uh, really, really care. Or, or maybe we need to say to, to someone um, that we really care about, we love, like, hey, um, the world's pretty crazy. Um, and a lot of times people don't believe in each other, but um, I just want you to know I believe in you. I think you work worth it. And I can't imagine this world without you in it. Like, I, I think deep down, people want this. People need it. And I think it echoes good news of the gospel that God calls us to and that Jesus embodies through God's work. And so, my friends, as we reflect on these things, may you know that God 
is for you and with you and believes in you. May you know that you have the power to echo Jesus' words to the world and the people that you care about. And may you know God's grace and peace.